should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. I'm getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book. You can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Oh, and welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because we got nowhere else to go! <laughs> my name is Kevin, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, or as he's better known, the Mark Twain of Brooklyn. Benedict! <laughs> what's what a hobby? To me? <laughs> what's a hobby you always wanted to start, but didn't? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I think... I would go with um, something douchey, like playing guitar. <laughs> you do play guitar, though. No, well, kind of. Like, not very well. Like, I can strum, well, yeah, through, no, I can strum through, like, a We're in the chords, same boat like, there. Yes, yeah. I know. <laughs> well, you're better than me, I think. Hardly. Uh, yeah, well, I can strum some chords and you can riff a bit. So together, we might be able to start a band. That's just um, because I sit around and fuck around while other music is playing. That's yeah. all I like to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that... I think... Honestly, like, I never really have got into listening to podcasts, which is a weird <laughs> thing to say. But, like, in, like, a, 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 like, I'm not a loyal listener, is the thing. And I love all our loyal listeners. Thank not you for being here. Not, not even to our show. You're not even a loyal listener to our show. I actually do show. listen to it sometimes now. When? Um, I, when it comes out on a Wednesday. <laughs> See, I know what day it comes out. I don't listen to the patron feed. That's an improvement, at least. Um, But, like, I'm not, like, there's no podcast that I'm, like, every week I have to listen to this. And there, Mm -hmm. I know there are some that I should, right? So, like, there there are shows that I really enjoy and I'm just too lazy to make the time to listen to them. And I'm, like, I'm not a a good passive listener, I think. Mm. So I'm not the kind of person. I am very much. I am always in my apartment alone. I have podcasts or music mm. playing while I'm doing everything else. Well, I have music playing, but I'm not listening to the words. You know what I mean? Like I have like yeah. I, I I have like funky riffs playing and stuff. I'm not like <laughs> Benedict's funky riffs. That's playlist. right. That's exactly <laughs> it. So I'm like I'm not like oh let, let let me hear that bar again. Like you know. <laughs> so I I have I have I have to be an active listener for for both music and podcasts if I want to listen to the words. And I just, I am too lazy to carve out an hour and a half of my day to, to do that a lot of the time. All right. All right. I'm not so, sure it counts as a hobby, but I'll uh, accept it. Look, it is. It is. It's a hobby. <laughs> in in 2022, yeah, it's a hobby. Actively, actively listening to podcasts is a hobby. Fine. I think. Fine. What about you? Uh, me, Benedict, one thing, and I sort of have talked about this, I think a little bit with you and a little, maybe a little bit on the show, but I never really got into PC gaming. Mm. Uh, which is something yeah, I neither did I. I agree. Yeah, because you know, I grew, we grew up in the age of consoles. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we I had the N sixty four as a kid, and eventually the GameCube, uh, and then Xbox came out, and it was all it was all that it was all that. Actually, we never had an Xbox. We we got an Xbox when the three sixty came out. Uh, but I have always loved RTS games, real time strategy. Yeah. And, and other stuff that really you only get or can only be played properly on PC. And for the first time in my life now, I have 
a crazy expensive computer with the top of the line graphics card and all this shit. And I can actually play all of the PC games I never got a chance to, uh, even though I spend most of my time playing 20-year-old games mm-hmm. that came out way back when I was still a kid. Uh, and I, I want to get into it. I'm going to get into it. I decided, you know, since, since last year for me was the year of the anime, and I spent all year just binge-watching anime. You bored uh, of that now? I'm not bored. I still watch a ton of anime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this year is going to be the year of the PC game for me. So, listeners, if you have suggestions, and some of our listeners have already given me some great suggestions for things to play, if you have suggestions of stuff that I should check out, you know, I'm on Steam, and uh, yeah, I'm on uh, Epic and all the other places where you go to get games. Uh, so if you have suggestions for me, let me know, because uh, I'm going to get deep. I'm going to get deep, 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 deep. deep. <laughs> in PC gaming this year. <laughs> but Battlelect, you probably know, but mm-hmm. uh, some of the listeners, they may not know exactly what it is we hear do here on this program. And them, I would say, this is the show where we go deep, 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 to plumb the depths of right-wing thought by reviewing a chapter from a work of conservative nonfiction and in between taking a look at other examples of the right doing their best to make America hate again. Benedict, do you have a hot take for us this week? I do, yeah. And it's, uh, I've lost it. Come back to me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, teacher. Can I have a second? Yeah, hold on. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I can't hear I had, this... it. I had it right here. Oh, oh yeah. No, I have Sorry, it. I have Zoom it. I have is it. cutting out. I have it. 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 All right. It is that toxic masculinity is extremely funny. Um, and this this is off the back of. So I know you know that I love the show Love is Blind. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, you're and they, a bad and, and, and no spoilers, but they did the... Um, okay, wait. I think you've explained this show to me before, but I don't remember. Right. It's so a it's, it's blind an experiment. date show? Yeah, basically. So it's it, it, they, they frame it as an experiment, but it's not an experiment. But... They basically put it's like 15... That, it's like that show where they put people in situations and make them and, and figure out how they would react, whatever, that yeah. ABC thing or whatever that I, show is. I, I guess, but it's 15... What would you do? It's 15 men and 15 women, okay. generally. And they, so it's an orgy? Yes. No, so they, they basically... Uh, they get to know each other in pods without ever seeing each other's faces. And then they like, if they, if enough of them form a genuine connection, that's not based on physical appearance, then they ask the other person to marry them, blah, blah, blah. And then like the next four weeks is like them seeing if they actually want to get married. Right. So, Mm. but the thing is Mm. they actively like definitely try and sabotage them by putting them like all together as a group. So like Uh all the people they were flirting with (laughs) in the pods that they didn't end up choosing. They're like, Oh fuck, that person's really hot actually. Uh, You know? So then the physics, anyway, that is not the point. The point is it's a great show, but also toxic masculinity is very funny because, and I won't spoil it with who, but there's one dude on there um, and they went for the bachelor party at um, Wrigley Field, which is in Chicago, obviously the the Cubs Cubs field. Um, And they did like a batting practice. And there's this one guy who's just like this, like very like, chill like suave like went in with like tight pants and boat shoes basically (laughs) and like crushed almost a home run and then the guy who's like super sporty bro in the muscle tank yeah yeah. literally that missed that struck out and was (laughs) so pissed like the most pissed i've ever seen anyone about anything it was so funny it's the funniest part it's funniest thing i've seen in maybe a month so 
douche bro in a muscle tank strikes out. If you've seen the show, yeah. you probably know who he's talking yeah. about. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What about Fun you? Fun stuff. Uh, for me, Benedict, Peloton is listening to our show. Okay. I know this. I know this because last week I brought up how the gamification, maybe it was the week before, I don't remember, how the gamification of exercise is a positive thing. Mm -hmm. And then, Benedict, days ago, before we sat down to record, days ago, after our episode came out, Peloton put out a literal game on the platform. Cool. Where basically it's Guitar Hero, where the bike is the instrument. And I'm sure the dev dev turnaround time for that. Oh was, yeah, it took him know, like five minutes. Yeah, yeah, five yeah, yeah. minutes, I'm sure. No, no time at all. <laughs> but you know what? I've been playing the shit out of it because it's kind of really fun. Okay. <laughs> but yes, I'm pretty sure Peloton is listening to our show. Oh yeah, it must and be it, that. It, it's entirely because of me that 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 new thing is put out now, and it's, uh-huh. it's, it's pretty fantastic. Uh huh. But Benedict, see, I was quick this week. See how that yep. goes. Housekeeping. Remember to rate and review us on the iTunes and the places and all the things where you can do the stars. Uh, follow us on the social medias at NYGBCPod on Twitter and at NYGBCBen. Is that it? NYGBCBen, yeah. Yeah, whatever the fuck it is. You got it wrong. Um, and, of course, Benedict, we have some updates, including one that was requested specifically by you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, of course, is that all commies look the, sta- the same. <laughs> Uh, and the meme, which I was bringing up on our last episode that you tried to correct me on and I ignored and then I texted you. Yes, it was Lenin and Stalin, not Stalin and Trotsky in the meme that I was talking about. Yeah, Lenin is not the same as Trotsky. I will commit seppuku via beach ball Uh at the completion of the episode. We have two more to record, so can you wait till... After that. <laughs> Second Benedict, uh, I, I brought up on our last episode, there was a little thing in, in what we were talking about, about teaching about Buckley and Hayek uh, mm. with regards to the Friedersdorf article that I had mentioned. Um, and I said, no, you shouldn't teach them. You should teach about them. And I wanted to bring it up because it occurred to me as I was listening to my own words afterwards that that is similar in a way to what Buckley himself wrote about in the fucking book we just read of his mm-hmm. God and Man at Yale, where he didn't want, uh, you know, these collectivist ideas taught unless they were going to be destroyed. And I think I want to point out that there's some nuance to my idea and that, in fact, I don't agree with Buckley on that point. And that I think, uh, you know, the, the point was that Hayek should be taught in economics and Buckley should be taught in journalism school. I disagree with Friersdorf in the sense that I think Friedersdorf meant it in that article. Mm -hmm. And I tweeted out that article, I think, earlier today or yesterday, whenever it was, if you want to go take a look at that. But I disagree with what I think Friedersdorf meant. Um, And I don't think, I also disagree with with how Buckley would view the situation if he viewed himself and Hayek as evil and worthy of being crushed. I think certainly, if you're in journalism school, you should learn that the National Review exists and you should learn, you know, what they do— uh, and I don't think in journalism school they do teach what the entirety of the right thinks uh, college is like or journalism school is like, where it's like, here's how you uh, tell everyone that conservatives are evil and that they should be liberals. I'm pretty sure that's what they think that college is all like. Um, that's not what should be happening. You should be learning about the, the history of them and what they did. And, you know, certainly you should be taught about them. But you should not be taught, 
here's William F. Buckley. Today we're going to learn how to write like William F. Buckley, which I think is more along the lines of what Friedersdorf was calling for yeah, and that kind of uh, shit is, based is, on my reading. It's weird because uh, Buckley's not a very good writer. No, he's <laughs> Which not. is weird because he knows what good writing looks like. Like he's, yeah. a good, he's a good editor, but he's not a good writer, which is very Definitely odd. True. It's yeah. hard to, I guess it's hard to edit yourself. You, you, yeah. you become, uh, well, yeah, maybe you should teach Buckley as a, as a journalism <laughs> spotter. Like be the net, be the person who identifies, teach people to be the person who identifies the next Gary Wills and Joan Didion. Maybe, like maybe that's it. I don't know. I don't know. And then, you know, Hayek, like, sure, you can teach. Hayek said this in an economics class and here's why it's not economics. He's just making polemic arguments. Mm. Like you, you could teach that in economics class just to make people aware that Austrian economics are not economics. I, I'm sure you could do that. Fine. Yeah. I but mean, I, honestly, like if you want to teach people Hayek, I don't really mind that. Like that's yeah. when it when it comes to when it comes to the economic stuff. I mean, things are. I, I don't think anyone really knows what's right with economics. It's not like sure. science, right? It's sure. not like teaching. But Benedict, like... I, I fall strongly on the side of Austrian school economics is not economics. Mm -hmm. Remember, we learned about I them. This is a school that does not believe in using statistics. They That's just it. believe in making arguments. It's the school of vibes. <laughs> That's true. It's all vibes. But Benedict, we have one inductee this week. Into the spooky world, new world order. And that is, of course, our new patron, Stefan. Stefan, you are now part of our. I'm not. Oh, god damn it. Wrong clip. <laughs> Wrong clip. New world, spooky world order. Nice. Um, nice. Nice. Thank you very much, Stefan. And it's. It's not spelled like it, but I would like to think that it is uh, the uh, Bill Hader character, mm. Stefan from Saturday Night Live. Hottest sure club is. I'm sure it's not. That's Stefan. That's the mm -hmm. Stefan I'd like to think is our newest patron. But of course, if you would like to become a member of the Spooky World New World Order, blah, you can uh, tweet about or post about the show on social media, recommending us to others, or send me a screenshot, tag us, whatever you want to do. Leave us a five-star review wherever you can and drop me a screenshot to let me know. You can become a patron, and then you automatically get inducted into the Spooky World New World Order, or just get my attention with something good, and, and I'll put you in there. So, Benedict! All that out of the way. This week, we're in an interstitial week. And what are we doing this week, Benedict? We got to talk about the subject of our next patron-only book review. And we've dipped our toe in these waters before, I want to say. Certainly, in the influenced, those influenced by these waters. Sure, yeah. but also we have done a reading from this because... You know, early on, we didn't have a clear idea of how to structure this show. Um, this show originally was a continuation of something we did on an older podcast mm -hmm. that we had. Um, and so we really, so we, we got into this one, we started doing this show, and we're like, yeah, we just do that, you know, how we used to do chapters of books. We could just do that and make it a whole show. Yep. And then we had the interstitials, because originally we were doing it every two weeks to save us time. And then I was like, nah, let's go back to a weekly show. Uh, and so at one point, I said, yeah, let's start doing these readings out of these books. And one of them that I found was, of course, The Conscience of a Conservative by mm -hmm. supposedly Barry Goldwater. But as we know, as you know, if you've been listening to the show, actually written by L. Brent Bozell Jr. Uh, ghost written by L. Brent Bozell, but presumably... I guess approved by Barry Goldwater to you be put think. out in his name. You I would, mean, you, I mean, 
we're going to learn about the guy. I'm not sure he actually would have taken the time to do something like that. Not, not the most detail-oriented person, I tend to think. But what we're going to be doing on the patron-only side for the upcoming months is, just like we did with None Dare Call It Conspiracy, we're going to have a patron-only book review of The Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater. Uh, and so I wanted to do an episode where we introduce the authors of this book, like we typically do for all of our book reviews. And mm -hmm. it also hits, because it's an interstitial week, where we go over various you know, conservative figures who I think are important to the understanding of why they believe the shit that they do, you cannot overlook Barry Goldwater. And because of this book, in addition, L. Brent Bozell. You cannot mm -hmm. overlook the importance of these people and the importance they have had in shaping the conservative movement in the United States, and I think by implication, worldwide given the importance that American conservatism has on worldwide conservatism. I just don't think you can overlook that. So, we are going to be talking today about Barry Goldwater. And off the top, Benedict, I have to say, Goldwater was the stereotypical libertarian idiot who demonstrates why supporting them is never in our interests in the long run. Mm -hmm. it, it just isn't. Uh, and Barry Morris Goldwater was born January 2nd, 1909, in Phoenix, the Arizona Territory. Okay. Because Arizona did not become a state until 1912. Interesting, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, born in the Arizona Territory. He was the son of Baron M. Goldwater and Hattie Jojo Williams. That was Jojo. Seems like an old-timey nickname. It does, cool. yeah. I'm down with it. Not bad. Sure, why not? <clears throat> His father founded an upscale department store in Phoenix, uh, and his uncle was a politician and a delegate to the Arizona Constitutional Convention, and later the president of the Arizona Senate. So this is a family that was big, not only locally, family, but yeah. big, yes, big political family, had a lot of influence. No, not surprising that at some point Barry would end up getting involved in politics. Mm -hmm. uh, so Barry's father was Jewish, but he converted to Episcopalian when he married Barry's mother, and Barry was raised Episcopalian as well. He did... Barry, this is, did pretty poorly in high school and was eventually sent to a military academy in Virginia, which he graduated from in 1928. He then enrolled in Arizona State University and dropped out after only one year, thus beginning ASU's greatest school tradition. Uh, he then began working at his... Come on, not even a chuckle for that, Benedict. <laughs> not even a chuckle for shitting on ASU? Wow. I don't really know what ASU is. So that's fine. He then began... It's Arizona State University. I don't know uh, what that means. Go try. I think they're the Tridents. I don't okay. know what they're. It's a, it's a very large school that people go to so they can enjoy spring break for four years. Okay. Uh, he then began working at his father's department store, which uh, he was running by 1936. His father died in 1930. Uh, and one fun tidbit to come out of his work at the department store was a product that Barry himself designed. And this is a quote from the New York Times, a July 16th, 1964 article titled Man in the News, the Republican nominee Barry Morris Goldwater. And it said, quote, Barry Goldwater worked hard and became an ingenious merchandiser who developed desert fashions for men. One celebrated okay. item which he designed was men's underwear printed with red ants, which he called, or he called them, Antsy Pants. And they achieved a measure of national fame when he advertised them in The New Yorker. That's so, funny. Sure. Inventor of Antsy Pants, sure. Barry Goldwater. Probably what he should be remembered for rather what than What he's most famous else. for, yeah. <laughs> Uh, when World War II came around, he received a reserve commission in the U.S. Army Air Force, it was then known. We didn't have an Air Force uh, independent of the U.S. Army at that time. 
and he received training as a pilot. He was then assigned to Ferry Command, which is a new unit that flew aircraft and supplies over to war zones, and he spent most of the war flying between the U.S. and India, and apparently on occasion flew a dangerous route known as the Hump over the Himalayas into China to drop supplies for the Republic of China. Uh, He remained in the reserves after the war and eventually became a major general overseeing the entire Arizona Air National Guard. He actually held that position while he was a senator, which feels strange. It, for whatever reason, yeah. having a senator who's also a general just feels weird. I'm not sure how comfortable I am with something like that. But he got his first start in politics in 1949 when he won mm-hmm. election to city council, along with a nonpartisan slate of candidates who were dedicated to cleaning up the widespread po- prostitution and gambling in Phoenix. Uh, And in 1952, he won an upset victory to the U.S. Senate against incumbent Democrat and Senate Majority Leader Ernest McFarland, who interestingly also later sat on the Arizona Supreme Court and heard the case of Miranda v. Arizona when it came before that court before going on to the Supreme Court and becoming the basis of Miranda rights. Yes, you guessed correct. There There you go. Miranda rights. Yeah. You didn't give me a second to say. (laughs) Uh, Goldwater was only the second Republican to ever represent Arizona. Okay. Uh, And he he was an outspoken critic of the Eisenhower administration, complaining mainly that Ike compromised with the Democrats too much. How many many people had represented Arizona to that point, though? Because you said it wasn't a state Uh, until... That's a good question. 1912, he won in 1952... Uh, I don't know, maybe a half dozen or so, if I had to guess. Well, yeah, but that's that's assuming that... Sorry, in the Senate, or...? Um, I believe, in my notes here, I wrote he was the only, only the second Republican to ever represent Arizona. I have to guess okay. that means statewide? Okay, I but guess? presumably they didn't have many reps, either. Presumably, either, the, yeah, yeah, either way. Anyway, whatever. This is a moot point, but it might sure. not be that many people that... Might not be, might not him. be. Uh, but he was an outspoken critic of the Eisenhower administration, right? Said he compromised too much with Democrats. And mm-hmm. given that for the entirety of Eisenhower's presidency, the House and Senate were controlled by Democrats, it seems unclear what Barry would have preferred to see happen. Yeah. I'm not 100... I think maybe it's this whole... And here's early, the other early obstructionism, maybe? Yeah. The other thing is, since Republicans generally have a policy platform of do nothing, mm. maybe he would have just been cool with that. I have maybe. to assume. I mean, it's hard, hard to do that in post-World War II yeah. America. Um, well, and Barry is very much a do-nothing kind of guy. The entirety Do-nothing, no-nothing? Yeah, he's, he very much seems to be in favor of do-nothing. Mm-hmm. That's his whole thing. I mean, we'll get to it a little bit when we get to, uh, I think, well, may, we might not be in the portion of his speech that I have for us today, but he's very much a, a do-nothing kind of guy. The g- government doing anything is bad. He's not the progenitor of that kind of thought, mm-hmm. but he's very much one of the people who helped to popularize it and make it sort of the Republican. It is the Republican platform. Let's be honest. Like, mm-hmm. do nothing. That's a Republican platform. But anyways, he has, of course, become known for being a rabid conservative anti-government ideologue and likely the most important progenitor of the modern conservative movement. And like I said, he's not the first person to hold these ideas, but mm-hmm. he's probably the most important person uh, to up until modern day, or maybe until, you know, Ronald Reagan. Do we, sort of we want to define this a bit? Because I think, I, I, well, I, I think lots of Goldwater supporters kind of broke from the Republican Party when Reagan became president, right? So, they, I mean, they saw Reaganism as no, as, as kind I, of an act. 
I don't think so. I well, think f- that that's I've just s- true. So you can it- say that you don't think so, but that is a thing that happens. So I think there were multiple sections of Goldwater supporters. Okay. Um, there was one group, and I don't remember who said the quote. I wish I had it pulled up in front. But there was one commentator, uh, some far right Republican. It might have been Buckley or Bozell themselves, mm. who said, um, "You know, Goldwater won the election. We just had to wait 16 years for him to take office." About Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember who exactly said that quote. Somebody can I think it's Bozell. Yeah, it might be. Um, somebody said that about Ronald Reagan. So there were certainly people who saw Ronald Reagan as the full. Oh, no, I think it was Gary Wills, actually. I think it was Gary okay. Will. Gary yeah. Will. So there were people who saw Ronald Reagan as the fulfillment. Sorry, of, George Will, not Gary Wills. Yeah. My saw, bad. anyways, saw very, or, uh, Ronald Reagan as the fulfillment of what Goldwater had been talking about. And that is you know, in the sense of government should do nothing except for fight the commies. That's all mm-hmm. they should do. Should be but the commies. I mean, not, not to keep talking about Joan Didion, but Joan Didion said that um, if Goldwater had run the Republican, run for the Republican platform, sorry, had run as the Republican candidate every year, she would have voted for him every year. Um, whereas she thought cool. Reagan, Reagan was a dickhead, basically, which is I mean, they're true. both dickheads. Yeah, they're, but but you see what I mean. There, I will there's say a, there's a there's a there's a fissure in the coalition there. Goldwater is a better public speaker than Ronald Reagan ever. That was. is absolutely not true. Ronald Reagan's uh, an actor. Mm. Ronald Reagan was a well, maybe public speaker. <laughs> Ronald Reagan was an excellent television speaker, and that's why he got sure. what he did. Sure, I I t- can tell you, I watched about half an hour of Goldwater speaking. For today's episode, and I, I think um, he knows when to pause. Well, sometimes he knows when to pause for an applause line. Um, and I think, given what we know, I don't know. It, it's hard to say. I, I agree. It's subjective. Who's better at whatever? Blah blah blah. It doesn't matter. Uh, but I think, f- for the most part, I don't see any difference between Goldwater and Reagan's mm. policy platform. I really don't. Except that uh, Reagan was an opportunist who might have not actually believed some of the bullshit he was saying. And uh, Goldwater absolutely was an ideologue who believed every bit of it. I'll, I'll say that much. Um, but anyways, Benedict, as we're going to learn uh, over the next you know couple months as we read this book by reading the words put into his mouth. I don't want to say exactly that they're, they're his words because, again, remember, Bozell wrote this book. Undersigned. Uh, the words undersigned by him. Yes, yes. But if they take any form beyond angry screeching, the ideas of the right, they really haven't changed much since Goldwater. That he has he cemented what the right wing ideologue position was going to be for a long time, I think. Mm-hmm. And then Benedict, we have to get to the most important part of Barry Goldwater, and that is, of course, his record on civil rights. Right. And your impression and the impression of other people is probably wrong about Goldwater on civil no, rights. No, he was okay on civil rights, right? No. I mean and that yes, and that's what's surprising. His history on civil rights is far more complicated than I think we and many often make it seem. And Goldwater is, I will say, unquestionably not a racist in the way that many of those who would follow him in the Republican Party, mm-hmm. like Nixon, Reagan, Trump, you know, ev- everyone who came after him and, Didn't he and loved work Goldwater. to desegregate Capitol Hill? We're going to get bit? to it. We're going to get to it. To okay, it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but all the people who came after him openly played to the, rapists, the racists <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> The rapists, the racists, both ways. Uh, but Goldwater actually believed in underlying principles other than racism that, although unquestionably just stupid libertarian bullshit, were his true motivation for opposing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mm. Now, Goldwater personally was relatively ahead of the times on race. 
while he was a senator and for a Republican for yeah for well for anybody yeah, while a senator yeah. and simultaneously a major general in the Arizona certainly probably National better Park. than Lyndon Johnson on actual like yeah, racism against individuals too. yeah it's it's weird man it's weird uh, but while he was a major general in the Arizona Air National Guard and a senator he desegregated the guard in Arizona years before any other state and two years before Truman ordered the military as a whole desegregated he did that okay. that's crazy. Mm-hmm. He was a founding member of the Phoenix NAACP chapter, a supporter of the Phoenix Urban League, who paid their budget personally out of his own pocket when they had an operating deficit. He helped to integrate Phoenix schools a year before Brown v. Board was decided in 1953. Uh, and in his first year in the Senate, he was responsible for the desegregation of the Senate lunchroom because he demanded that his black legislative assistant, Catherine Maxwell, be served like any other Senate employee. Mm-hmm. He also voted in favor of the Voting Rights Act, or the Civil Rights Act of 1957, the 24th Amendment to the Constitution, which banned poll taxes, and announced that he would have voted in favor of the Civil Rights Act of 1960, but he was absent for that vote due to reasons not having to do with politics or, or anything having to do with the vote. But of course we know that he voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mm-hmm. And that is mainly because he opposed Titles 2 II and 7, which had to do with racial discrimination in employment because he believed that it would lead to government dictating hiring and firing policy. Gotcha. And what sets Goldwater apart and the reason why he is so important, despite his personal beliefs, which all the stuff I've just mentioned above, I don't think there's any denying he was head and shoulders above the majority of, of people, in, I mean, probably in either party at the time, if I had to get it. I don't, I don't know what the, the state of, of the universe was on civil rights at the time. I know there were plenty of people, there are probably plenty of black people who were better than him on civil rights, certainly. Yep. But for, you know, white conservatives in the 1950s, he seems to have been head and shoulders above just about anybody else that I can think of other than, you know, people who were just actively involved in promoting civil rights. So... He voted against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. We know that. And and despite his personal beliefs, he did that. And that is what he attracted to himself and the Republican Party. That's why he attracted to himself and the Republican Party the conservative racists who had previously spent so long as Democratic Party loyalists. And this is something we've run across with Dinesh D'Souza and every other person we've read who wants to deny that this event happened. Um, You know, he famously ran as the Republican candidate in 1964 in the primary facing off against New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, who he defeated. And the irony shouldn't be lost that the personally progressive on race Goldwater facing off against Southerner Lyndon Johnson, whose personal record on race could be called problematic at best, but who had politically pursued an aggressive and very good race agenda. I think part of it being related to trying to live up to um, you know, JFK's legacy. And the mm-hmm. fact that JFK, at the time of his death, and his brother Bobby had been working on race. And, you know, Bobby had reached out to Martin Luther King when he was in prison. All that sort of stuff. That may have, have spurred Johnson into pursuing some of these things, like the 1964 Civil Rights Act, mm-hmm. like the Voting Rights Act in 1965, that otherwise Johnson probably would not have done on his own. No. Also weird that Johnson probably gave one of the best speeches on race. Uh, I forget which university. It was a, 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 I forget which one it was he gave it to. But the speech where he talked about taking a man out of his shackles and putting him at the starting line of a race and saying you are free to compete now against all the others. 
you know, it's a really amazing speech with mm. some, some really great stuff in it. But this is also the election where we've heard a clip of our in our John Birch series where Rockefeller condemned the Birchers and other extremists and got booed from the podium at yeah, the 1964 yeah, yeah, convention. That. So this is also that very election. Now, Goldwater was absolutely destroyed in the general election. Johnson won 44 states to Goldwater's six. 43 million votes to Goldwater's 27 million. And the only states Barry Goldwater won were Louisiana, South Carolina, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, and his home state of Arizona. And that was presumably a, a anti-civil civil rights bill yes, reaction. For whatever reason. Than, yeah. Explain to me why, Dinesh D'Souza, Barry Goldwater, based off of, you know, his re- personal record on race, won the South and lost everywhere else in 1964 mm. at the time in which segregation was still being argued over and taken seriously by people. When the Democrats had won the South forever up until that point. I mean, it's it's literally, you cannot look at this and take anyone's argument seriously, like Dinesh D'Souza, when they say, oh, this never happened. Uh, the, the South actually got, they started voting Republican because they became less racist. That was an actual argument we got from Dinesh D'Souza, which drove me nuts. But, so he won the South. This was also 1964. The I, last, I, I think he probably, he won the South by default, though, almost, right? Like, it, well, you know, yeah. it's not, not even his... His well, policies, because the, the South like voting, wasn't going voting to vote against the Democrat. Right? The South was wasn't the... going to. Well, not not. Well, the South was Democratic, right? The South the, no, the, but, had been sorry, voting vo- for Democrats voting, for a voting long time. against the party that passed the civil rights. Right, bill, that's what I was going to get yeah, to. Yeah. They weren't going to vote for the guy who had had uh, you know pushed for the Civil Rights Act and all this other stuff. So it you know they went for Goldwater, who had voted against the Civil Rights Act. And mm-hmm. I will say it's not so much um, that, that that Goldwater himself like I said, has been actively courting these racists. It's the fact that this one action, him opposing the Civil Rights Act, caused all the Southern racists to go to the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And that caused a cascade effect over the next several elections, where then, following Goldwater, you had people like Nixon with the Southern strategy. People started actively courting the racist and extremist elements in the Republican Party. Because Barry Goldwater was an extremist. He believed this far-right wackadoo bullshit, the hardline anti-communism of the John Birchers. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is part of Goldwater's oeuvre, right? But people who came after him, they didn't have genuine principles, I think, mm-hmm. underlying what they were saying. They were very much opportunists, seeking to scrape up what was left that Barry Goldwater had convinced, hey, you should come look at this Republican stuff we're doing, <laughs> right? And then and then they're like, hey— uh, we, we can get all those those white people down there to vote for us. And that, to carry on that point, 1964 was the very last election in which the Democratic Party won the white vote. It was, of course, the beginning of a long-term shift of the South, and more importantly, whites in the United States towards the Republican Party. And Goldwater, like I said, I think he did it unintentionally. But those who followed him were creations of the paradigm that he formed uh, and led to the coalescing of the far right and white supremacists behind the Republican Party, mm-hmm. which you know completed, I think, by the time of of Ronald Reagan and uh, you know you could even argue uh, George Bush the uh, second was were finally when that was complete because George Bush uh, George W. Bush brought in the hardline religious extremists mm. who previously maybe weren't getting as much airtime as they were until that. 
and then of course yeah I, Donald I mean, Trump just played all of them reached it reached its final form probably in 1992 with um Pat Buchanan and God, David Duke Pat running Buchanan. like <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. Remember that? You could argue. You could argue. But many people also, it should be said, criticize Goldwater as crazy or a mm. psychopath. Right? We had the Goldwater rule created. Well, so, sorry, I, I have a question, um, mm. which, it, because this is burned into my brain, whenever the, um, whenever Trump was running, and they were like, that ad went viral, the anti-Goldwater ad that was made by Republicans. Yep, can the you, Daisy ad. Can you explain that a bit and like why Republicans were against? Because I, I don't know anything about that, really. Well, the Daisy ad was, I don't remember who created it, but the Daisy ad was an ad which showed, basically, it, it's a creepy ad. If you, you can go see it on YouTube. It's, uh, it's, it's creepy to watch. Um, it's a little girl walking around picking daisies, and I think she's singing the song, Daisy, Daisy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the rest of that lyrics. Um, give me your answer to I'm half crazy. Or, yeah, there you go. That's the lyrics. You got yeah. it. Um, but anyways, so that ad went up and who I'm, I'm looking right now to find out who actually paid for the ad. No, no, that was Johnson. That, that the, the Daisy ad was the Democrat ad, but there was a, there was a Republican ad that was, uh, against Goldwater. I'm pretty sure. Maybe I'm wrong. Let me look it up. Hold on confessions of a republican might be the one you're thinking of but that was also put up by lbj's campaign yeah it was also an lbj one okay Uh, but the the one that everyone knows if they know about this election is the daisy ad and so it's this girl picking daisies and then boom giant nuclear explosion annihilates everything it's it's very jarring it's certainly incredibly jarring uh, I think the one you're thinking about is the Confessions of a Republican ad. Because, it is, yeah. It is, um, it is. Rachel Maddow aired that in 2016 to compare uh, Goldwater and Trump, right? So that's that's what I think you're going after. But yep. I think the the Daisy ad is much more well known uh, because it's it, it's crazy. It's fucking out there, and really, what it boils down to is that was a play on Goldwater's hardline anti-communist stance and the mm-hmm. fact that Goldwater um, very much did want to fight all the commies. Mm-hmm. Uh, dis- despite being a libertarian, he became more libertarian as he got older after 1964. So a lot of the things, you know, uh, later on in his life, he was very pro-abortion. Um, he was pro-gays in the military. He was pro-drug legalization, all these things. And, right, again, I always have to point out with libertarians, it's not because they're morally correct it's just because their dumb, dumb beliefs lead them to correct conclusions. Yeah. Right? There's very little room for us to actually stand arm in arm with those idiots and, uh, and you know, argue for the same thing because our solution is legalize those things. Their solution is destroy the entire government, right? And then we'll have those things legal because there yeah. won't be any government to say it's illegal. It's weird. But anyway, so the Goldwater rule comes out of Barry Goldwater, this election, because there were psychologists, psychiatrists going on television and making diagnoses of Barry Goldwater as being crazy or psychopath, sociopath, whatever. And uh, I tend to disagree with those people who went on and made those those conclusions about Goldwater. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think Goldwater was crazy. I don't think he was a psychopath. I don't think he was a sociopath. I think he was just a dum-dum. 
He was a dum dum with very sincerely held. And dum dums can be dangerous. That's the. Dum-dum- I, I they think can that's... certainly be dangerous. Yeah. They can cert and Barry Goldwater was unquestionably dangerous. If he was elected, he probably would have dragged us into war with the Soviet Union. Taking Nuclear the Cold war. war hot, probably. <laughs> very probably because yeah. he was because his dum dum beliefs led him to, and again, you know. We talk about the John Birch Society a lot. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any direct connections to the John Birch Society, but the Birchers fucking loved them some Goldwater. Mm-hmm. They loved them some Goldwater because they basically believed the same things. There's not a whole lot of daylight between the two of them. But, uh, certainly on communism, yeah. Certainly on communism. Uh, and then, you know, again, when you get into the civil rights stuff, the fact that he voted against the Civil Rights Act, we know how the Birchers felt about civil rights. <laughs> not very much in favor. So anyways, you know, Goldwater, not crazy, just stupid. L. Brent Bozell Jr., on the other mm, hand, Benedict. Crazy both, and stupid. Both crazy and stupid. Funny how you knew exactly the line I had written in my notes here. <laughs> As we've mentioned, uh, Bozell was the actual writer, the ghost writer of Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative. And that book came out in 1960. I don't know if I've said it yet. The book we're going to be doing came out in 1960. But Leo, it's very short, too. It's like 100 pages, right? It it's, is. And that's the thing. Also, if any of our listeners are aware, um, because none dare call it conspiracy, which we did previously, it was barely over 100 pages, I think, something mm-hmm. like that. Yep, about um, that. Conscious of a conservative, this is also 120-ish pages, somewhere around that. Um, I need more books like this for patron-only book reviews because stuff of this length is perfect. Because yeah, send us the polemics. We want to read the polemics. Yes, send us this stuff. Because when I do, well, the way we do the patron-only book reviews um, is where I read selections to Benedict from them, which is different than what we do uh, on the normal show where we both read the book and then we talk about what's in it. And the shorter chapter lengths of perfect. these sort of polemics are perfect for doing that. Absolutely. So we need more stuff like this. I'd love to do... So. I think the conspiracy stuff is really fun. So if you have any ideas of stuff that'd be good for us in that 100, 120-ish page range, send them to us. And I'd love to take a look and find out what you all think we should be doing. But anyways, Benedict. Mm-hmm. Leo Brent Bozell Jr. was born January 15th, 1926 in Omaha, Nebraska to Leo Bozell Sr., no surprise, and Lois Bozell. Okay. During World War II, he served in the Merchant Marine, Upon returning, he attended Yale University, where he became best friends with William F. Bill Buckley. Buckley. And he was, he married his sister, right? He did. He did. He ended up marrying uh, Billy's sister. And man, she went crazy too. There, uh, I think I mentioned at one point, um, I think it was maybe during the introduction to William F. Buckley, uh, the story about his sister going up on stage at an event and slapping someone who she thought had, uh, uh, like talked bad about the Virgin Mary or something. Cool. And like, the thing was like, that was because of Brent Bozell's influence. Like that's not because she was Buckley's sister. Like that's because she married Brent Bozell and turned into a major Catholic weirdo type. Mm. Like she, she got more extreme because of him. Buckley privately was like mortified because of, of that experience because he was like, you know, he was a very public person and a member yeah, of his Yeah, I think he, he was very crazy. into public appearance, right? I mean, B- yes. Buckley in particular was very into like, don't fucking embarrass me. I'll embarrass myself, <laughs> but nobody else is allowed to embarrass me. Absolutely. But while he was at Yale, Brent Bozell became the president of the Yale Political Union and, this is a weird one, the campus world federalist movement. Sorry, chapter. are you telling me that a conservative was president of, a, of Yale's political union? 
Yes. I thought yes. conservatives were outlawed at Yale. <laughs> and William F. Buckley's best friend. Yeah. Best friend. Somehow, he left, that out of, oh, somehow he left that out of his book where he was complaining yeah. about how Yale hates conservatives. Yeah. That's so... And but what, also, what, okay. Wasn't Buckley, like, editor of the, like, journal? Yes! <laughs> yes, goddammit! <laughs> so funny. It's because of their natural elite nature. They couldn't deny <laughs> them, that's why. <laughs> Call forward to the book, isn't it? Yeah, perfect. Um, but, uh, so, okay, the World Federalist thing stood out to me, that he was the president of the World Federalist movement, because we've had multiple weirdos talking to us about that. Glenn Beck complained about the World Federalists. The John Birches complained about the World Federalists. I don't, I don't get it. Why was Brent Bozell the head of the World Federalist chapter? Which, again, yeah, is an organization that, at any given time, had no more than a few thousand members. I don't get it. Doesn't, I don't understand. Anyways. He converted to Catholicism in 1947. He was not actually raised Catholic, which just, you know, anyone who converts to a religion, I think, is much more primed to become a zealot and very, very dangerous. I think that's true, yeah. I think that's yeah. true. I mean, because you have to have strong feelings about mm-hmm. it to decide to do something like that. And I think he had originally, like, planned on um, converting in, like, 1945 or 46, but he wanted to wait until after his dad died. To not like to make not him... cause family drama. Yeah, something like that. I'm not exactly sure why. <laughs> to not have to tell his dad he thought he was going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. But in 1954, uh, he and William F. Buckley co-wrote McCarthy and His Enemies, a book mm. we talked about. Nineteen. Gl- say that again. 1954. Okay, so early. Early, early. Just a Buckley's, few years after Buckley wrote God Man at Yale. Yeah, very early in the. I don't. I don't think the National Review was even going at the time. I think it's a few years before National Review. And Bozell would have been what late twenties there. Ooh, if I ha- yeah, because he was the he was the same age ish as okay. He was born in nineteen twenty six. Do that math for me. So twenty yeah twenty eight twenty yeah something twenty something. Um. So yeah, just just very young. But he wrote this glowing review of McCarthyism and uh, even went on to join McCarthy's staff mm-hmm. after Roy Cohn resigned. Oh, fun. <laughs> yeah. It's like really a real cast stuff. of characters, isn't it? Oh, all shitbags go back to the same origin yeah. story, don't they? Roy Cohn. It's all Roy he, Cohn all the way And down. Bozell actually wrote McCarthy's defense speech before the committee that ended up censuring McCarthy. And uh, like a bunch of policy speeches going up through 1958. He just deeply involved in this piece of shit. And McCarthy Benedict, you may know, was a senator from Arizona. I did know that. So once McCarthy was out of the picture, it is not surprising that Brent and that his buddies would pivot and go to the other weirdo from Arizona, Barry Goldwater. How did they meet? I, you know, I couldn't find a story of how they meet. met. I have to imagine, since he was working for McCarthy, uh, and uh, Goldwater was, when did I say Goldwater was elected? It was 1957? yeah. Or was it before so. that? I don't remember exactly. Hold on, let uh, me hold find on. it. 1952. 1952, yeah, he so. was elected. yeah. Um, so he would have been the junior senator from Arizona and Goldwater, you know, their, they were, their staffs probably worked together a lot. Okay. Uh, you know, they probably spent time together if mm-hmm. I had to guess, and especially since they were both far right conservative weirdos, not surprising at all to me. And so, you know, once, once, uh, McCarthy falls off the map, he just sort of pivots pretty easily over mm-hmm. to Goldwater. And of course he wrote the book we're talking about, uh, the conscience of a conservative, which was yep. published in 1960. 1960 is coincidentally also the same year he first took his family to fascist Spain, mm. uh, which meant that he missed, 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 
the meeting of Goldwater, Buckley, Russell Kirk, and William Baruti, at which they decided to exclude the John Birch Society from their movement. Mm. Apparently, Buckley thought that Brent would be cool with saying, hey, freeze out the Birchers. But apparently, Bozell cool. <laughs> was super down with the John Birch Society. He had society. no chill about excluding the Birchers <laughs> at all. Apparently, pretty mad yep. that they were getting frozen out. So in 1965, after the 1964 failed election, mm. Bozell decided to move to Spain full-time. Again, a fascist country. Mm. And start his fascist magazine, Triumph. Which is, it was basically a reaction to Buckley and the boys at National Review not being Catholic fascist enough for his taste. Mm. I keep saying those words, Benedict, but in this case, they are 100% accurate. Because the older Bozell got the less enamored with democracy he became. Oh, yeah. Until he eventually, you know, when he was writing this magazine in Went fascist Spain. Went to live Spain, in fascist Spain, yeah. Came out full-on supportive of Francoist fascism. Mm. He loved him some Catholic. So fascism. similar to what the FedSoc is doing right now. <laughs> that, yes. that, it's a nice little callback there. Are you um, talking about CPAC? CPAC. Uh, CPAC, okay. Uh, going Same to, yeah, yeah, spending their spare time in fascist countries. No, no, who was uh, it that was it was it a FedSoc paper that was that, that was like is oh, democracy yes, yes, really all that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Is democracy really a thing that we need yeah. to have? Is that guaranteed by the Constitution? Yeah. Yeah, hey, no. listen up, conservative justices on the Supreme Court. I think you should get rid of this whole democracy thing. That's basically <laughs> what that paper said. Well, if they do, uh, we can get rid of the Supreme Court, which you know. <laughs> but he so Bozell basically viewed Triumph, this magazine. As, uh, and I'm not joking, a Catholic fascist version of the National Review. Mm -hmm. He staffed it entirely with Catholic fascists. He wrote glowingly about Franco as Spain. Was it written in English? It was. It, you know, actually, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, I probably should have looked that up. Yeah. I'd imagine, I would imagine since it he was be. in Spain, it might have been published in both languages. Um, Let's you know, because. Uh, yeah, you should look. You should look into that while I'm reading the rest of this to you. Uh, but he was also mad at Buckley that Buckley didn't go hard yeah, enough against out, abortion. They? Yeah, they had a falling out. They definitely had a falling out. Buckley didn't go hard enough against abortion for his taste, uh, and Buckley also didn't hate. There's this whole thing with the radical fascist <laughs> Catholic right about Vatican One and Vatican Two. And that's basically, it comes down to the way masses are done and the Latin mass and all this archaic bullshit and, you know, popes being more moderate. Bozell was definitely against popes and the Catholic Church being more moderate. Uh, Buckley didn't really give a shit. Mm. So uh, that was another point upon which they fell out. And it's also worth noting that Bozell did differ with Buckley on Buckley's open racist appeal to Southern segregationists. But the difference was more about the tone and Bozell's fear of scaring off Northern Democrats and moderates rather than any support for civil rights. Uh -huh. uh, and then in 1966, Buckley wrote an article in an article that Catholics shouldn't try to enforce their beliefs about abortion on others through legislation, which made Brent go butch, just butt fuck mad. Yep. Just fucking, fucking angry. About um, quickly, uh, it was written in English. Most of the staff were American. Uh, some Spanish editors and contributors, but nothing awesome. really. Cool. There you go. Also, uh, discontinued in 1976, notably a year <laughs> after Spain became a democracy. So, isn't that fun? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, he had to be so disappointed when he when moved Franco there. In died, like, when he Jesus moved there in 1965. Christ. He yeah. moved there in 1965. Well, that's nine years. Sudden, he had nine years, to be fair, yeah, of fascism. Yeah, yeah. Because he moved there Which in 1965, is... he's trying to make this thing work, and I, I think he might have come back around 1970, so I don't think he was actually in Spain uh, when, yeah. So, I don't know, I didn't look into that part of it, like, because he's back and forth a lot. Like, he yeah. lived in Spain, but he, you know, he came back and forth a lot. He was just traveling all over the place. Uh-huh. Um, and eventually, Bozell started to denounce U- U.S. and conservatism as a whole as, quote, an inadequate substitute for Christian politics. And after, of course, the Roe v. Wade decision, he started just outright attacking democratic capitalism wow. Can I, in addition to communism. Sorry, I'm reading about Triumph magazine as you're talking. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of the contributors was Frederick Wilhelmson, who you know. Um, and he was a professor at the University of Navarre. And he argued that of all the Western nations, Spain held a unique place because there is only one nation in history that has bested at arms both Islam and Marxism. <laughs> And that one nation is Spain. Oh, God, that's fantastic. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. But yeah, yeah, after Roe v. Wade, uh, the magazine just really pivoted full on into attacking democracy and became an all-out pro-Francoist fascist magazine. Um, that, that's, that's what it became. Mm -hmm. And in 1970, Bozell took a trip back to the U S uh, and he and a group of crazies he was in charge of, uh, led an attack on an abortion clinic in Washington, DC, uh, wearing khakis and red berets. Benedict bonus points. If you can tell me why the red berets, uh, hold on. Let me have a think. Khakis and red berets. Google. You mean a Google? No, no, no. I look, look, you can see my hands. I'm not Googling. Khakis and red berets. Uh, fascism? <laughs> well, it was an homage to the Carlist Basques. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Obscure Basque region Very... history is, is the reason. That's why. Okay, the, uh, the Basques separatists? No. The Carlist Basques. Oh, the Carlists. okay, okay. So the, the, uh, the, the monarchists. Yeah, the, okay. the loyalist Basques who wore red berets. Okay. Uh, and they were also, of course, during this attack on an abortion clinic, carrying papist flags and rosaries. And my favorite detail about this attack uh, was that during this attack, they managed to get into this abortion clinic because one member of the group jammed one of the doors open with his rosary. Oh, wow. Okay. And then they swarmed inside, shouting, Vivo Cristo Rey, and started destroying the building, as you do. Bozell, unsurprisingly, was also behind the organizing of the first March for Life and became uh, very integral to that movement and remained a fascist the rest of his life, dying in April 1997 in Bethesda, Maryland, less than a year before Barry Goldwater himself died in March 1998. Mm. So Goldwater and Bozell are two very different people, uh, both ideologues but with vastly different ideologies. And I will say at the time that Bozell wrote the book we're going to be doing, The Conscience of a Conservative, um, the, he was certainly a hardcore Catholic nutjob. But as we've heard, it became more extreme as time went on. Um, and I don't know if he was full-out fascist in 1960 when he wrote this. He was certainly sympathetic to fascism at the time. Uh, but, but not, you know, it's hard to say he was, he was full-out in with it. Um, Goldwater, certainly, I think, much dumber, much dumber than Brent Bozell, uh, and was willing to, to go along with, again, Bozell was a speechwriter for Goldwater. He wrote a bunch of the guy's words and also this book. 
So we can't doubt the influence that Bozell's crazy had on Goldwater, but I think there's a difference in intent behind the two. Goldwater, well-meaning dum-dum. Well-meaning dum-dum. Bozell, bad-meaning dum-dum. <laughs> like, Goldwater had some bad stuff, too. Like, he had some bad not, stuff as let's well. Let's not belittle that. Certainly. So, but, Noel, I, I will say... Um, you know, we always have this problem with people that we read where I have to sit and go, do they actually believe this? Or do they just think that saying this outrageous bullshit um, is in service to the cause that they think is worth bullshitting for, mm-hmm. right? I think Goldwater genuinely believed the things that he said. Genuinely, genuinely believed them is the impression that I get from everything that I've read about him and the words I've seen him speak. He genuinely believed them. Bozell, craven opportunist who did not care and would say anything to reach the end goal of, you know, Catholic fascism in the United States. Like, I, that, I think that's a big difference, and I think it really does matter. I think it has to be pointed out. But, Benedict, we have some clips. We have two clips. I have two clips for you today. Oh, it feels like uh, we're already long, but okay, okay. Yeah, well, you know, we're having a fun time. Are uh, we? Both of them... <laughs> both of them are of Brent Bozell... Or, I'm sorry, of Barry Goldwater, because Bozell didn't do a lot of public speaking and is very boring anyways. Okay. Um, but also, oh, did I mention Brent Bozell's, I think, grandson got arrested for January 6th? Oh, yeah. The Capitol. Wait, which one yeah. is he? Yeah, I don't remember. L. Brent Bozell the eighth. Who gives a fuck? He's a dipshit. Uh, but anyways, Bennett, we have two clips today of Barry Goldwater. One of them from his appearance on Firing Line. Okay. With our buddy. And this is directly related to his civil rights record. This is, in fact, him being asked about his civil rights record. This is after the 1964 election, by the way. I think it's 1965 this appearance happened. So here he is on Firing Line with William F. Buckley. Back Senator Goldwater's candidacy in 1968. Oh, my God. I hate his fucking Senator words. Goldwater, we have a, n- another question here from some of our listeners. You voted against the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Would you do so today? And what is your posi- your position now on the proposed Voting Rights Act? Well, the answer to the first part of your question, if the same two uh, the same two items remain in the bill that caused me to think it unconstitutional at that time rem- remained in any bill today, I would have to vote against it. Mm. This isn't something, by the way, that you're that. So he thought they were unconstitutional, not even that he opposed them. He, th- he actively thought they were unconstitutional. Right. And, and I tend to believe him on okay. that, that that was why, because based on his record, uh, I tend to believe that that was the genuine reason why he voted. Now, that's a dumb, dumb reason to. Yeah. To why vote not vote for it and let the Supreme Court decide? Isn't that the point? Of the sure. Supreme Court? And as, like, as he says here, uh, the Supreme Court has ruled on one of them and said it's no longer constitutional. And I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll let him say it himself. Okay determination on from the standpoint of politics i have no question that had i voted for that bill i might have softened some of the uh, negro opposition to my candidacy but i'm not foolish enough to think that i would have won over the naacp Uh, i have to live with myself and i took an oath to defend and uphold the constitution and this was the only civil rights bill in 12 years that i couldn't vote for but it did contain two Uh, two items that I thought were unconstitutional. One, the court has now said is constitutional, so I have to abide by the court. Okay, that position makes no sense and is only a position a dum-dum could hold. Mm -hmm. Because if you know anything about U.S. law... If you think it's unconstitutional and the court says it's constitutional, then you are wrong that it's unconstitutional. Right, but here's the other thing about (laughs) it, Benedict. 
You, the Supreme Court, the way it operates in our country, they are not able to make a ruling on something unless it is an active case in controversy. Mm-hmm. There would never be a case or controversy for them to rule on unless, unless law the law was passed. first passed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he's just a dum-dum. Yeah. He's just a dum-dum. Now, the second part of the question on the, I don't think it's a voting rights bill that's up this year. This is the new bill you're referring to of President Johnson's. Yes. Uh, I don't think it could be called a voting rights bill. I think that was passed last year. This new bill uh, has to do with occupancy and so forth and so on. And I have to agree with uh, Senator Dirksen and Senator Irwin that uh, there's enough constitutional question on it that it should be considered by this Congress and probably the next Congress before any action is taken on it. Mr. Buckley, any thoughts on that? No, sir. No, no, no sir. Of course Buckley doesn't want to comment. <laughs> I do not. No comment from me. Probably the best move for him, yeah, if we're going to be honest. That's true. So you can see, I think that's a great clip because that portrays to yeah, me. Yeah, I think it encapsulates uh, him probably pretty well. Right. Again, this is a, a college dropout who's not a lawyer, who has no experience with the Constitution, but so many, so much of the rights thing is pretending to understand law and the Constitution, mm-hmm. despite them not having any damn clue about any of that stuff. I mean, uh, your Google search doesn't outweigh my law degree. Sorry. <laughs> uh, that's just the way it works. And then, Benedict, I have another clip. And this okay. is the clip, I think, probably his best-known quote is going to be in this next clip. And it's one that, if, like me, you listened to a lot of conservative talk radio Mm -hmm. in the early 2010s, uh, late 2000s, you heard this clip. And I have a distinct memory of hearing several different radio talk show hosts play this clip and pontificate about it. Okay. uh, On on numerous occasions, because they think this is incredibly deep. I tend to now think the opposite, that it's not very very deep But this comes from his 1964 Republican convention speech. And I will just say, I watched about 20 minutes of this speech earlier today. It's about 40 minutes. I didn't watch the whole thing. Okay. Uh, But he literally says the word freedom like he gets paid per usage. (laughs) Like, it's incredible how little substance is in this speech. And he just keeps talking about freedom, 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 freedom. And attacking the commies, the commies, the commies. All that stuff. It's crazy. But also, no, before the speech... There was a fun thing that happened. They Nelson over- Rockefeller got booed. Well, that happened, yes. That did happen. <laughs> but they did a balloon drop. Oh, okay. And they overdid the balloon drop so that Barry's family couldn't get up to the podium where he was giving his speech from because there were so many balloons in the way. So there's like five minutes of this video, which is on it's on YouTube. You can find it. There's like a PBS version of it. Uh, there's like five minutes of him standing there at the podium with his wife while the rest of his family is waiting. And then the camera keeps cutting to these like 20-year-old GOP staffers Try kicking at the, the balloons. balloons. Kicking, kicking, and stabbing balloons with their pens. Trying to get rid of all the balloons okay. that are in the it's fantastic. So it's worth watching just for that. But here's, uh, you know, I put in a little bit more than is relevant, uh, just so we have a little bit of flavor of what he's talking about here. Sure, and what he's starting off here, he's talking about, just for context, uh, the time of Lincoln. This is the, the context in which he's making this statement. He said this to the Republican Party, and I, I quote him because he probably could have said it during the last week or so. It was composed of strange discordant, and even hostile elements. End of the quote, 1958. Yes, 
Yet all of these elements agreed on one paramount objective, to arrest the progress of slavery and place it in the course of ultimate extinction. So you can tell by the way he said that, that was intended to be an applause line. Yeah. But there was utter silence after it. Okay. But Goldwater could not read the room could not get a, on this yeah, one. Right. Ending of slavery, not a big deal for this particular crowd. Nope. Today as then. But more urgently and more broadly. What happened then? then I, he, he like leaned down to touch something. I'm the not balloon. sure. It was off camera. I couldn't tell. It might have been another balloon task of preserving and enlarging freedom at home and of safeguarding it from the forces of tyranny abroad is great enough to challenge all our resources and to require all our strength. There you go. That's your applause. Moderate, moderate applause fine, for okay. warmongering. Anyone who joins us in all sincerity, we welcome. Those... He's not pausing very well. Those who do not care for our cause, we don't expect to enter our ranks in any case. Okay. Well, yeah. That got larger applause than the we welcome anyone who wants to come with us. Though. Yeah. Let's fuck everyone who doesn't want yeah. to be here. And let our republicanism so focused and so dedicated not be made fuzzy and futile by unthinking and stupid labels. <laughs> yeah, this isn't deep. No, it's not. I, I agree with your assessment. Your reassessment I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. The camera cuts to a, a feed of Nixon, by the way, sitting in the crowd there. So that gets probably the biggest applause of the speech. Thank you. Thank you. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. So that's the quote. It's a Cicero quote. Extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in uh, pursuit of justice is no virtue. It's a, that's Cicero, the it's a Cicero quote. Yes. But that, every Republican will credit that quote mm -hmm. to Barry Goldwater. No, it's a Cicero <laughs> quote. And, and it comes from Cicero's, uh, I think it's Cicero's oration against Catiline during the time when Catiline tried to overthrow the Republic. And uh, by by extrajudicious means, and was caught and killed by Cicero. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a weird quote. Yeah, and yeah, then, strange. And then, and then Cicero was, I think, prosecuted for killing killing Catiline extrajudicially. So, but but Bennett, what I think is more important is the context that we know through this mm -hmm. show and everything we've learned about. That moment and that quote. I know. I just the, wanted to show off that I knew. I know. You're a smart guy. Whatever. <laughs> but so we know, for one thing, 
Nelson Rockefeller earlier in the convention was booed, booed for roundly for, booed roundly booed for calling for the expulsion of extremists from their rank. Mm-hmm. We know that at the time in the 1960s, the word used for these groups like the John Birch Society and others was they called them extremes. Uh-huh. That's the what they used to call. So that's the context in which Goldwater is bringing this up is mm-hmm. that extremism. And I think it might have been that that line very well may have been added mm-hmm. because of what Rockefeller had done earlier in that convention. It's very possible that that was a direct response to Rockefeller on purpose. Essentially, I don't know apparently, that to be true, but I, uh, apparently it was a line from Jaffa. That line, Henry oh. Henry Jaffa. Uh, oh, sorry, Harry Jaffa. Harry Jaffa, um, who was a Claremont guy. So yep, yep, a lot of, a lot of Claremont folks. Uh, but so that's the context of that quote, and I think it's incredibly important to see there. I think Goldwater thinks of those words in a different way than the audience he's speaking to does. Probably, yeah. Because it's probably I think seen as Gold- a direct rebuke to to um, Rockefeller, as you say, by the audience. Certainly, certainly. And probably, and honestly, also- probably by Jaffa. Like if Jaffa wrote that line, I bet that's through. I bet he was thinking of that as a rebuke to. Well, and, and I think it's also knowing what we know about this election, the fact that the the crowd that's there supporting Goldwater is a pro segregationist group. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can also view it through that lens as well. Yep. And then the second part of the phrase about moderation in pursuit of justice, I think to Goldwater again means something very different than what it meant to the crowd who were hearing it said. So potentially in the sense that you mean you shouldn't do unconstitutional things to wait. No, that doesn't make sense. Well, I, I also think that for Goldwater, again, he's a dumb dumb. Um, <laughs> so it, it doesn't exactly fit because Goldwater voted against the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was mm-hmm. a form of moderation in pursuit of justice, because even though he was personally in favor of civil rights and the sort of things the Civil Rights Act would have done, he had to moderate himself <laughs> because he thought it was unconstitutional. So yeah, but yeah. he says he says that's no virtue, right? So, so he's not virtuous. You yeah. get what I'm saying? This is not an incredibly intelligent man, but <laughs> um, like I said, I think he meant well in his own mind. Yeah, he thought yeah. he was doing the right thing. He wasn't just a crass political actor, you know, using the language that he thought would appeal to people. Mm-hmm. He actually believed these things. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's an important thing to note about him. Okay, but anyways, Benedict, that is our introduction to Barry Goldwater and L. Brent Bozell. And of course, we're going to be going over The Conscience of a Conservative on the patron-only book review for the next couple of months. That's going to be a whole lot of fun. I'm really excited. And if you want to hear that, as well as all of our previous patron-only bonus episodes, our patron-only book reviews, you can go over there, uh, patreon.com forward slash NYGBC, become a patron. That's it, Benedict, for this this week's weeks i can't talk at this point episode oh it's gonna be tough to do two more episodes with you today. <laughs> that's because you did this one for an hour and a fucking half sorry again. thank Once you for listening again. we hope you enjoyed the show bye Remember, if you just can't get enough of us you can go over to patreon.com forward slash nygbc and become a patron for as little as two dollars an episode for patron only episodes shout outs on the show early release of episodes and more as always we have to give a shout out to our wonderful and amazing patrons stefan shannon hillman Utah Outcast, Paws, Brent Lee, David Garrido, Dave Barwick, Charles Trulier, Dodd Snow, Chris Palmer, Bad Bible Stitches, Ellie Bartlett, Lisa, Tarn Somerville Fletcher, Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, C. David, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy Blasphemy, 
Becky Scott Fairley, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, A.J. Brantley, Taro Takanen, Skeptical Seventh, and George Soros's baby boy, Balls Watterson. Thank mm. you all, as always, for being our patrons. That's a good change. I like it. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, pop goes the weasel. Goodbye. Bye. podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.